holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Lord Christ. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning again, everyone. Again, welcome to especially all the seniors graduating. I was thinking as I was praying for each one of them, I've been at All Saints now for I think 16 years. And so a lot of them, I remember when they were very, very, very little, just a couple of years old. So it's a delight to see you graduating. Uh, And we do pray that the Lord would send you out into the world uh, to be with us, one of us still as you go out as a member of Christ's body. So it's a delight to have you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Before we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A former All Saints pastor made headlines this week. Don't worry, it's not, everyone's heads goes up on that. Has an officer. Not too scandalous of a way, but at least in the Christian press, he made headlines. James Wood, who was a, a former director of the Young Adult Ministry here and then became a pastor and was one of the pastors that planted grace and peace, he wrote an article in First Things entitled, How I Evolved on Tim Keller. Not too scandalous, but pretty bold to take a shot at the Protestant Pope, which he kind of did. And his article relies on another person's work, this man named Aaron Wren. I think we've mentioned him before to you. And he writes about three phases of evangelicalism, life and ministry in the positive world, in the neutral world, and then in the negative world. And Wren argues that the positive world existed until 1994. This was a time in which most people either identified as a Christian or at least saw the Christian faith and the church as positive contributors to our society and the well-being of a society as a whole. And being a Christian then was a status enhancer, personally, socially, even politically. And that's because the moral norms of Christianity were, by and large, also the moral norms of our society. And all of that, he argues, for various reasons, changed in 1994, and we entered into what he calls the neutral world. And this is when the Christian faith and our beliefs, and particularly the morals of our faith, they were seen as neither necessarily overly positive or overly negative, and we still had a seat at the table in the sense of in the marketplace of ideas, and what we believed was considered at least possibly beneficial 
to the society that we live in as a whole. And this all, according to Aaron Wren, ended in 2014, and he says that we entered in what is called the negative world. Now, why do you think 2014? Anything you remember particularly happening in 2014? He says that the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court to legalize same-sex marriage, he says that that institutionalized Christianity's new low status. And since then, he argues that our culture has had a negative view of Christianity and our role in the world, not only our beliefs, but particularly our ethics, especially our ethics around sexuality. And so now, either identifying and, and agreeing with these beliefs and these ethics, that will not only cost you significantly, personally, vocationally, socially, but also even not speaking out against them can cost you. It's a new negative world. And can you guess who Wren says was the greatest Christian influence in the culture in the neutral world? The, the man who, during this time in which we still got a public hearing in the marketplace of ideas, whose profound intellect and and grasp of the scriptures and theology, but not just that, but also philosophy and history and art and, 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 and music and culture, as well as his winsome and articulate way of speaking. Who is this? Tim Keller. And our friend James argued that we need to move on from Tim Keller because his primary way of engaging in the world was a neutral world strategy, what is called cultural engagement, something that we've talked about around here for years and years. And he and Aaron Wren both argue we need new strategies in this negative world. So are they right? There's plenty for you to read out there on the internet if you want to decide. But what I want to offer you this morning is a way that transcends all worlds, the, the positive world, the, the neutral world, the negative world, or whatever other world might come. And it's found in John chapter 13. So how are we as Christians to live in and with the world, and what can even convince them, those that aren't yet Christians, that what we believe is true? Two points this morning. First of all, what we must not value too high. The lectionary takes us back to Peter today. We were with him two weeks ago in John chapter 21, immediately after all of his denials, when Jesus restored their relationship. But here we find him in John 13, and this is everything that happened before the denial and what led to it. And this is the evening of Jesus's arrest. It's right after the Last Supper has been finished when Jesus washed everyone's feet just like a slave. And he tells them immediately after he washes their feet, one of you will betray me. Then he goes even further and says, the one to whom I dip this morsel of bread and give it to him, he's the one that will betray me. Probably dipped it in wine because for John in particular, bread is always an image of Jesus's body and also wine, his blood. And so in verse 30, Judas has taken the blood-dipped bread, symbolizing everything that's going to come, his very death and Judas's role in it. And John, in verse 30, writes, he immediately went out. Judas goes out, away and apart from Jesus, separate from him. And then he writes these words, and it was night. And these words mark a significant shift in the gospel of John. Everything is different from this point forward. And one commentator I read said, Judas goes out into the night, a symbol of satanic darkness. And he's right about the symbolism, but he's wrong, I think, about the direction of the darkness, because it doesn't say that, that he went out into the darkness. Rather, he says he went out and the darkness came in or upon not just Judas, but everyone. It's like he opens a door 
that floods the rest of the gospel with a darkness and a chaos and a death that remains until Jesus's resurrection. And again, it's not just Judas, it's everyone that's overshadowed by it. And it was night. It's still night, friends. I often tell you that there are spiritual forces of darkness, unseen spiritual realities that we're not fully and completely aware of, but they're very, very powerful and they can overwhelm us. They can overwhelm, not just overshadow, but overwhelm us if we, like Judas, open the door to them. Remember what I all too often tell you about sin. It's not just something we do. It is something that does us. It is a spiritual power that's been unleashed in this world, and it seeks to tear apart everything that God has joined together. And again, like we read here in verse 30, it's been unleashed in this world. It's in and a part of this world. It's in and a part of us in this world, and it can overwhelm us if we open ourselves up to it and walk further out into that which has already come. And I think some of you should ask, is that happening to me right now? I'm so very, very thankful that you're here. But is this also where you are going further out into this chaos, into this darkness, and these powers? That's what we talked about throughout Lent. Remember what we talked about, the seven deadly sins, or better yet, the seven capital vices, capital in the sense that they're in charge, that they can become what's in charge of our lives. And remember, vices aren't individual acts of sins or individual decisions for that, but they're habituated ways of being. They're repeated acts and repeated decisions that are done over and over again until they become routine for us. And then our routines become who we are in our very souls because these decisions and these actions, they've been engraved upon our souls so that now we are very much like them. They've become increasingly us, who, what we are. And what that means is that things like vanity, just the inordinate need and love of people's applause or people's approval, it can rule you. Or envy, which I told you was being sad or always sorrowful over somebody else's good. That can become what you are. Or envy or sloth. Sloth is just, it's not just laziness, it's resistance to change. Resistance to the change that God is seeking to bring about in your life and that you know that you need. Or greed, living for possessions, money. Or gluttony and lust, living for physical pleasure. Whatever that physical pleasure may be. From drink, from food, from sex, whatever it is. This is what you live for. Or even wrath, which it's not just anger. It's more than anger. And we live in an incredibly and increasingly angry culture. I would even say a wrathful culture. Because what wrath is is saying, I have to be right. Me. I'm right. And everybody else is wrong. And I have to punish them for their wrong that they've done to me or to others. And the point is, we can be Judas. You can be Judas. I can be Judas. We can, we can open the door for all of these spiritual forces of chaos and darkness and move out further and further into them. And remember, if you open up yourself to them, you don't just open up yourself to them, you open up everyone else all around you to them. Your friends, your family members, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, they too can be overshadowed by what you open up. That's what happens to Peter here. The night that Judas, night, quote unquote, that Judas initiate overwhelms Peter. And why particularly Peter? Why does it overwhelm him? What does he miss here? What, what makes him so particularly vulnerable? I think, it's, I think the answer to that is found in the last two words that he says. 
What are the very last two words that we hear Peter say here in verse 37? What are they? For you. I will lay down my life for you. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner, one of my favorite commentators, says about these two words. He says, Peter was already the comic relief at the beginning of chapter 13 when he was, quote unquote, too humble to receive Jesus' service at the foot washing. Now Peter provides something like comedy again if it weren't so pathetically tragic. Peter completely misses the point again. As at the beginning of chapter 13, now here again. And seemingly almost every time Peter shows up, Peter thinks that the Christian faith is mainly something we disciples do for Jesus and not supremely what Jesus does continually for us, to us, and through us as disciples. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying Peter's flipping the very Christian faith. He's, he's flipping the very foundation of it and trying to turn our relationship with God into something that he, he and his strength at the very center of and not God and not God's grace to him. And Jesus is genuinely astonished here. Do you hear that in Jesus's words? You would lay down your life for me, for me. You think that I need forgiveness And I need a restoration with God. And I'm the one that needs a new heart and a new life. And you're going to give all of that to me, Peter. It's as if he's saying, Peter, again, you've missed it. You've missed it. You're always trying to be the hero of this story. Stop trying to be the hero of this story. And in fact, by trying to be the hero of the story, Peter comes very, very close to being the villain in it. He can't be the hero of this story. And that's what makes him so very vulnerable. His imagined strength, his spiritual arrogance. That's what opened him up. That's what made him so particularly vulnerable because he valued his own imagined spiritual strength and his moral resolve and what he thought of as wisdom far, far too much. What he thought of as wisdom, it made him a fool before God, before others. So are you being the fool right now? Are you thinking I'm the one who's right, unquestionably right, undoubtedly capable to do this, to be this? Do you value your own strength and wisdom far, far too much? Because we are most at risk spiritually when we are most confident about the state of our spiritual lives. And that is Peter here. He valued all of this. He valued himself far, far too highly. The second point, what we must not value too low Did you all read the article in The Statesman about Laura Young? It was on the the front page of it a few weeks ago, or maybe even a week ago, and it was on the top right-hand corner. I don't know where it was on the internet, but on the front page of the actual paper, it was in the top right-hand corner. There's a picture of her. She's this antique dealer here in Austin, and four years ago, she was in a local Goodwill, and she saw a life-size sculpture of a man's head, a bust, and she thought that it looked old. She thought it looked heavy, and so she picked it up, and it was heavy. 52 pounds. And so she bought it for $34.99. And who knows what the Goodwill people and employees actually thought it was worth or who the person who dropped it off and thought it was worth as well. Maybe they just donated it instead of throwing it away. But it was in fact worth far, far, far more than $34.99. In fact, it's beyond any price tag, literally priceless, because it's a 2,000-year-old Roman bust of a man named Sexus Pompey. 
And he's the son of Pompey the Great. Pompey the Great was the one that Julius Caesar defeated in order to take over the entire Roman Empire. And Sextus Pompey was the guy that fought against him for the rest of his life, trying to carry on his father's crusade, becoming so historically famous that Shakespeare wrote this man into his play, Julius Caesar, and somehow his head ended up in an Austin, Texas goodwill. Probably brought back from Europe after Europe, uh, after the World War II in Europe illegally. And only, here's the point, only Laura Young had eyes to see how valuable it actually was. Everybody else thought? $34.99. But what, unbelievable, what, what do we value too little? What does Peter value too low or too little? What does he miss here? In between Judas's departure and his ill-fated promise, what does he miss Very simply, he just misses verse 34 and this commandment that Jesus calls new, that they love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. And that's the newness. The newness is the how he did it, how he loved him. And what has he done? Because he's speaking in the past tense here. So what has he done? Well, he's just washed their feet, again, like a slave, but it wasn't just a lowly act of service, an ordinary, everyday, common, lowly act of service. It was absolutely that, but it was so much more. It was also a sign pointing to and anticipating and even participating in what he was about to do, which is to lay down his life for them, for the forgiveness of their sins, for the restoration of their life and relationship with God and a share in Jesus's coming resurrected life. That is how he tells them to love one another to lay down their life for one another. And what does Peter promise? Don't miss that. Jesus says, lay down your life for whom? For one another. And what's Peter say? I'll lay down my life for you. Not one another, not them, not these other followers, not these other guys. I'll lay down my life for you. Apparently he's not too interested in doing what Jesus just said to do. And this is a theme for John. And you hear it here, but you also especially hear it in his letters, because John was the last of the apostle to write his scripture, his gospel, and his letters. He lived for a number of years in and with the church after Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension. And so he knew what life in the church was like. He knew what all too often life in relationship with other Christians in life is like. And so too do you. So too do we. Sadly, painfully, We also know what life with other Christians is also like and what it's often like. Infighting and gossip and slander and hypocrisy, power plays for leadership, narcissism, insecurity, selfishness, refusal to confront sin, enabling mistreatment and abuse, cover-ups of the very same a preference for the wealthy and the powerful and the beautiful and the gifted, avoidance and even disdain for the poor and the weak and the stranger and the homeless and the foreigner and the difficult and the troubled. And so much of it, especially the infighting and the division, what's it often done in whose name? In Jesus's name. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. What he really should have said is I'll lay everyone else's life down for me and I'll say that I'm doing it in your name. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 4. He says, we love others. And in this context, especially other Christians, we love other Christians, not because they're deserving of it, but because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Him who? Jesus, right here on this night. He heard it. This is the commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love or lay down his life for his brother or his sister or any Christian. And so do we? Do do we love one another? Do we love one another like this, or do we value one another too little? I graduated from high school in 1994, and so if Wren's taxonomy is correct, then the vast majority of my time in training and in pastoral ministry has been in what he calls the neutral world. And I don't know if he's right about the negative world. I don't know if he's right about it in general or if he's right about it beginning in 2014, but I do know this, that in my lifetime and in the last 25 years that I've spent in vocational ministry, I've never seen a more contentious and vitriolic culture within the church. And not necessarily in all saints, but just in the church in general and relationships between other Christians. And I just wonder why. Why is that true? And I wonder if you all agree with me, but if you do, why is that true? I can't help but wondering if we struggle to love one another now because we're more opposed by those outside the church. And because of that pressure and that difficulty and that pain, whatever it may be, we fail to love one another within the church. I wonder also if it has something to do with our politics. Because an article came out this week in The Atlantic that you ought to consider reading. It's by Tim Albetta. He, said, he writes, and it's entitled, How Politics Poison the Evangelical Church. He writes, for many evangelicals today, the enemy is no longer secularism or secular America, but who? Their fellow Christians. People who hold the same faith, but different beliefs, particularly political beliefs. He says, it's the story of millions of American Christians who, after a lifetime spent considering their political affiliations in the context of their faith, are now considering their faith in the context of their politics. I think he's right. I think he's at least right about that. Because in 16 years at All Saints, I don't know of many, if any, who have changed their politics because of their church, but I know plenty of folks who have changed their church because of their politics. And for many, it just seems like their politics have become larger and greater than their faith. And if that's so, if that happens, it will make us hate one another. It will, and it does just like John writes in 1 John 4. And here's the question I want to end with, an even more difficult question, honestly, and that is what does that dynamic do to our relationships with those outside the church? What does that do to our relationships with non-Christians? Well, it'll do the very opposite of what Jesus said it would do if we would love one another like he's loved us, because in verse 35, he very clearly says, if we would love one another, sacrificially love one another the way that he has loved us and in and through and because of his love for us, then it would do at least two things. One, they would know that we belong to him. And two, they would want also to belong to us and in belonging to us and through belonging to us, belong to him and know him and follow him. They'd want to be a part of this life and this love that they see in and a part of us. But when we don't love one another, the very opposite happens. We not only damage one another, but we keep them not simply from us, but from the Lord. And this has always been the case. First John 4, it's been the case. Jesus speaks about it. It's Peter's problem. It's the problem now. It's been the problem throughout history. In the fourth century, this man named John Chrysostom, much better preacher than me, they called him Golden Tongue. And he, 
Seriously, don't ever call me that. But, um, <laughs> but he said the very same thing in a sermon just like this. This is what he said. Fourth century and what is now modern day Turkey. He says, if a pagan outsider sees us as ambitious for power and enslaved by other passions, he will remain more firmly fixed in his own beliefs since he entertains no exalted opinion of us. Because he doesn't see us as any different. Indeed, we are responsible for their remaining in error, for they have long since despised their own teachings and at the same time begun to admire our teachings, but they are kept from our faith by our lives. When they observe us attacking each other and our neighbors more savagely than any wild beast, they call us the plague of the world. And people do call us the plague of the world. And it's not completely warranted, but at times it's warranted. And it doesn't have to be. It simply does not have to be this way. In fact, it is our glory, according to this passage, it is our glory for it not to be. You see Jesus' first words in verse 31, the very beginning of our passage, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now I'm glorified. And now God is glorified in me. It's all past tense. So Judas goes out and he immediately says, now I'm glorified. What has happened that his glory is going to be known? In other words, what is Jesus's glory in John? It's different than in the other gospels. You need to know this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus's glory is, is at his return. They, they portray his humiliation at the cross, his vindication at the resurrection, and his glorification when everybody sees and knows who he fully and completely is when he returns, not in John. In John's glory, in John's gospel, Jesus's glory is everything that happens from Judas leaving until he ascends. It's everything that happens. In fact, it's him being betrayed. It's him being silent before his accusers. It's Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, God the Father is never more glorified when Jesus, lamb-like and in complete obedience to the Father's wills, lay down his life for you and for me. That's his glory. It's called the hour. John always talks about the hour of Jesus. It's the hour of his glory, and it's when he's on the cross laying down his life for you and for me. And that's just not his glory. It is. It is the glory of God to love like that, but it is also your glory. It is your glory to love like that in and because and through the relationship that you have with the one who loves like that, who is that in himself. So your glory as a Christian is to sacrificially love others, beginning with Christians, not, not excluding others, but at least beginning with one another. And so love one another. And do you? Do we? Like, like Paul talks about here, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ forgave you, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your extended family, your friends, your neighbors. Love one another as God in Christ loved you. Because the world sees his love for them in your love for one another. Do you know that? He see, the world sees God's love for them in our love for one another. So love one another. It is your glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enable us, as I pray at the very beginning of our service, to truly see and believe that you, Lord Jesus, are the way, the truth, and the life, and that in knowing you is true life and perfect freedom.
perfect freedom to be who you have created and redeemed us to be, perfect freedom to truly reveal not simply our glory, but to reveal your glory in the world, the world that that does not know you, but the world that desperately needs you. So enable us, Father, to love one another as Christ has loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.